All right, thank you guys. Good seeing you this morning. If you're a guest, we're especially glad that uh, you are here for uh, what is a holiday Sunday. It looks like a holiday Sunday here, a long weekend for some. Uh, Saw a bunch of our folks in Laramie last night at the ball game, surprisingly, and uh, I'm sure they're watching online as I speak even now. But we're so glad that you're here, especially as a guest, uh, whether online or in person. We do hope that you'll take the time uh, as uh, the service unfolds, as the Spirit speaks to your heart, and uh, there's always this anticipation that we have that God's Spirit is going to speak uh, and challenge each and every one of us, and maybe for some of you it means coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, to become a follower of Jesus Christ, or maybe as a follower of Christ, become a part of the church family, and so we would love to be able to uh, have a conversation with you about that, and we do hope that you will respond, uh, text FL Respond to the number 833-571-3475 so we can follow up and get in touch with you. I want us this morning to open our Bibles to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 16, and in particular verses 13 through 18 as we talk about life's ultimate question. And my sense is this could be a significant sermon for you, uh, that it's a significant sermon for someone that is at a crossroad of what your life is going to be, what your life is going to be about, what you're going to put your life towards, and ultimately your destiny as as a person. Uh, I'm concerned that we live in a day and time that really doesn't seem suited to ponder, that really doesn't give itself thoughtfully to pondering uh, important questions in life. J.P. Barkand, in his novel, The Point of No Return, says of one of his characters, he has all the little answers, but he's missed all the big questions. You think about it for a moment, the truth is that there is one big question in life, one ultimate question. In fact, this question is one that impacts the 8.1 billion people that populate this earth today and impact the billions that have lived before them. It's a question that determines who they are and ultimately where they will spend eternity. It's the question posed by Jesus in this chapter, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And it is that question that every one of us, every person in human history has to consider and ponder in their own life. It's a question that emerged as Jesus and his disciples, you see the narrative unfolding. It's a story and a narrative that uh, that takes place, begins to unfold. You can go back and read all the miracles that have occurred, all the things that the disciples and interested parties have seen along the way. And now as they come to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked this question, who do you say that I am? Now that's actually a follow-up question because the first question that Jesus asked to his disciples was more generic in nature. He knew his disciples had been moving in and out among all the masses and the crowds that were following after Jesus that were attracted to him. And so Jesus asked, who do people say that the Son of Man is? As you're, as you're moving about with people, what are you hearing? What is the feedback that you're getting? How do they understand the Son of Man? Well, you can see that some of the answers are, are very flattering. Some say that, that you're John the Baptist. Others that you're Elijah or Jeremiah or, or one of the other prophets. And those are all very flattering 
answers. Especially in contrast to some of the other things he had been called, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, a devil even. So these are very, these are very flattering, but, but they fall short of what, of what Jesus would have, would have hoped for. Now, Jesus knows what the masses want. They, they want a Messiah that is going to be a political ruler. When they think of a Messiah, they think of someone that is going to bring the life that they aspire to, the, the world, the life that they can never have in the present world, those who, who hold positions of power, influence, and wealth. And in their mind, because that's their only reference point in, in, in the thinking what the world might possibly be like, that's what they're anticipating the Messiah doing, just kind of flipping the script where God's people are now in control. We have the power, we have the wealth. That's why Jesus would say, my kingdom's not of this world. But the real concern of Jesus, he knows it will take time for the crowds to understand and to come around and even his disciples. But Jesus' primary concern right now is for these 12 disciples into whom he is pouring his life. Because Jesus knows his fate, he knows his destiny, and and he knows that, that his life in ministry And what will become the church is going to rest upon the lives, the shoulders of of these 12 individuals. So he's really pouring into them and he wants to know what they think. But who do you say that I am? That's the real question. Peter, of course, emerges seemingly always as the spokesperson, always quick to speak, slow to think. But Peter quickly says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not, did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And while Jesus was able to make this confession that thou art the Christ, what we call the great confession, and while uh, some of the other disciples probably held the same opinion at this point, They didn't really understand the full implications of the nature and the character of the one who would be the Messiah. Oh, they they know the kind of Messiah they want him to be. They want him to be a Messiah on their terms. They, like most people, they, they want the blessings of eternal life. They just don't want the burdens of carrying a cross in in this life. They want a Messiah that is going to be a political ruler. It's going to overthrow Roman oppression, reestablish the throne of David. They recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but they want him to be a Messiah on their terms. So Jesus really catches them off guard when he starts talking about instead of conquest, power, and victory, all of a sudden Jesus is talking about suffering and death. It says in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to point out to his disciples, this is on the heels of the great confession. From that time, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, and to be killed and be raised up on the third day. And yet Peter, this same one that had just made the great confession, thou art the Christ. And yet Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but men. 
how quick the script can flip. In the span of, of six short verses, Peter has gone from being called the rock to being called Satan because he is more concerned with his own wants, his own desires, his own preferences, his own expectations of this one that would be called the Messiah. The question is no less important today, 2,000 years later. The question that Jesus posed to his disciples then, he poses to us this morning, who do you say that I am? Not only does eternity hang in the balance, but your response to that question will determine the kind of person you are and the kind of life that you will pursue and ultimately your destiny in life. And so this morning, I want us to take the weight of this question, who do you say that I am? And I want us to consider some things that we have to reflect upon if we are to truly appreciate the response that is necessary to this question, who do you say that I am? The first thing that I would set before you, drawing from the text, is the reality of Jesus. Notice in verses 13 and 14, it says, now, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do you say, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Now, as evidenced by the by the, by the responses that we've read here, there's all kinds of opinions as, as to who Jesus was even 2,000 years ago. There, there are still varied opinions today. In our secular world, our post-Christian world, when, when you mention the name of Jesus, it conjures up all kinds of, of opinions and, and responses. Most people would say, in their vague familiarity with Jesus, they would say he's a good man, moral teacher philosopher. Others might say he's a religious lunatic or some kind of deranged idealist. And every so often you come across an individual who even questions the historicity of Jesus, this idea of a, of a mythical Jesus, as if Jesus was some, were some kind of mythical character that never really existed. Now, the foolishness of that is to be seen, and it's evidenced in a variety of, of places, but at one Midwestern unit, university, there was a debate, and it was sponsored by the Progressive Labor Party, which is a fancy name for a Marxist, but this leader of the Progressive Labor Party said in her opening remarks that historians today have pretty well dismissed the idea of a historical Jesus. Well, that shows how uninformed she, she really was. You'd be hard-pressed today to find any legitimate scholar, historian, that even toys with the idea of a mythical Jesus because the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus, the man, was a reality in, in history. Now, we know that we have 39 Old Testament books that anticipate the coming of the one who would be the Messiah, 27 New Testament books that said that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. 
But I think what we fail to realize sometimes as believers is that even beyond Scripture, there are at least 11 extra-biblical. That means outside of Scripture. There are at least 11 historical documents. These, these range from Jewish to Roman historians that talk about a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was a leader of a religious sect whose followers claimed that he was resurrected after his crucifixion. So even the earliest opponents of Christianity never even refuted the idea that Jesus the man existed because the evidence is overwhelming. You think of someone like H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells blasphemed the name of Jesus, and yet he was compelled in his, in his significant writing, his significant tome called The Outline of History. Even H.G. Wells included 10 pages on the life of Jesus because the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus the man did exist in history. But that's just the starting place, the reality of Jesus. Believing in Jesus as a reality of history, the way that you believe in Abraham Lincoln or George Washington as being realities of, of history, that is not a belief that leads unto salvation. Because what we see in the movement of this text is not just a pointing out of the reality of Jesus, reflecting upon the reality of Jesus, but, but notice also we see the revelation of God. I think that's what is really preeminent in this text. That in this exchange between Jesus and his disciples, we have a front row seat to the revelation of God, of God revealing himself and making himself known. That's what revelation is. It is the process by which God reveals himself and makes himself don't notice in verses 15 through 17 he said to them but who do you you yourselves who do yourselves say that I am Simon Peter answered you are the Christ the son of the living God and Jesus said to him blessed are you Simon Barjona because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my father who is in heaven so we see that in scripture and even extra biblical, even beyond scripture, not only is Jesus a historical reality, but by divine revelation, listen, by the working of the spirit, you and I know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of God. And throughout history, God has been in this process of revealing himself, revelation. God has been in the process of revealing himself and making himself known to humankind. Paul would say in Colossians 1.15 regarding Christ that he is the image of the invisible God. Wonder what God is like? Look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. And God himself has been in the process of revealing himself. You say, well, how has he done that? Well, Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that God has done this through, through creation itself. Paul said, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. We're without excuse. God has revealed himself in the entirety of, of the created order, the universe. Well, God has also revealed himself in, in humanity, in mankind. You go back to the very beginning. 
In Genesis chapter 1, listen to verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But God wasn't yet finished. God also revealed himself in the nation of Israel. Listen to what the prophet wrote. Isaiah 60, 1 through 3, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. He's talking about the nation of Israel. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see how God, the revelation of God is working. But you know, every one of these forms that I've referenced, they were inadequate. They were insufficient. They weren't complete. See, not even creation. God is still a creative God. God is still making all things new. So we see that even in the creation account of Genesis 1, that, that is lacking. It's not, it's not sufficient. It's not, it's not complete. We know that mankind, we know it better than anyone, don't we? Man man has sinned. We have failed to live up to the image of God. We have suppressed the glory of God that desires to be made manifest in us. So man is sinful, so it's not an adequate portrayal. And Israel, of course, fumbled the ball, failed to live up to her responsibilities, to be a light to the nations that the world might be drawn unto her and into fellowship with God and God the Father and his providential purposes realized that more needed to be done if people are to really know me if they are to really understand me if my people are going to be drawn to me then I must come in a way that is that is complete in a way that is fulfilling And that is the incarnation of God in Christ Jesus. You see, that's why Jesus would say to Philip, Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You ever want to know what God is like, the nature and the character of God? I'll just just go to the scriptures. Study, examine. The word of God. And so something very unique has been happening here in the life and the heart of Peter. And when he makes that great confession, and when Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Listen, church, it's no different today, these 2,000 years later. When you understand that Jesus is the Christ, when you understand that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Redeemer of the world, when he is the redeemer of the entire created order, that is divine revelation. That is the spirit of God. It's not your intellect, not flesh and blood. It's not your intellect. It's not because you're smarter than others and you figured out what nobody else could. It's not because you were raised in church and just the familiarity of the gospel story being told Sunday and Sunday after Sunday. 
No, when you comprehend who Jesus is, that is divine revelation. That is the Spirit of God acting in your spirit, seeking to draw you into a relationship with him. Which brings us to a final and third thing. It's not just the reality of Jesus, nor is it the revelation of God alone but it also necessitates the response of man. Listen to verse 15 and 16 again. He said to them, but who do you yourselves say that I am? You yourselves. Not a collective response. Each one of you. You have to make a determination. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so with revelation comes responsibility. When God reveals himself through the power of his spirit, when, when God reveals himself to us, it demands a response. There is a responsibility that goes with that, with that knowledge that God has given, that God has granted. God's grace always comes with responsibility. We literally find ourselves at a crossroads. We're at a point where we have to decide when God has revealed himself and made himself known to you through Christ Jesus, you're at a crossroad. Having to determine what your life is going to be about. Am I going to accept him? Am I going to follow him? Am I going to believe in him? Am I going to be his disciples? Or am I just going to stand over here? It's a choice every person has to make. Every person must decide for themselves. Life's ultimate question will always bring you to a crossroad. See, that's the nature of God's spirit. When God's Spirit works, when God's Spirit compels us, illuminates our mind, reveals himself to us, requires action. Now, here's the danger. If you don't react, if you don't act, and if you don't respond, what happens, behavioral scientists will tell you this. It's no great theological principle. But the more often times that you reject a stimuli, a stimulus, then with the passage of time and your failure to respond to some stimulus, that stimulus loses its impact and effect. Where it no longer evokes the same, the same response that it did pre, you've ignored it. It's what the scriptures say in Genesis. God said, my spirit will not always strive with man. And so the Spirit of God does this work of conviction and compelling and, and calling, but you keep rejecting that. You keep failing to respond to that, to that stimulus of the Holy Spirit. And the heart of man can become so cold and so hard that not even God's Spirit can break through. 
Life's ultimate question demands a response. And it's not one that can be delayed. The late Fred Craddock was professor of homiletics and New Testament at Emory University, gifted communicator. And some of Fred Craddock's best stories were about his growing up years in in Middle Tennessee. And he said when he was growing up in Middle Tennessee, he said his father never did go to church. Me and my siblings, my mother, we faithfully attended, participated, and served in the church, but not my father. He said the minister, the pastor would come by and uh, every once in a while at the compelling of my mother and try to talk to my, my father. And my father said the same thing every time. Oh, you're not, you're not interested in me. All you're, all you're interested in is another name, another pledge. You don't care anything about me. They'd have a revival at their little church there in Middle Tennessee. And the pastor and the guest evangelist, they would come over to the Craddock household, try to talk to Mr. Craddock. Same thing again. You're not interested in me. You don't care anything about me. All you want is another notch on the gun. You just want another name, another pledge. Craddock said his mother would be embarrassed. She would run off into the kitchen. I could hear her crying. But his dad always said the same thing. Y'all don't care about me, just another name, another pledge. That's all you're interested in. He said, I must have heard my father say that a thousand times until he didn't. Fred Craddock said the last time he saw his father, it was in a veteran's hospital. His father weighed about 74 pounds. Throat had been removed, ravaged by radiation put in a tube so he could breathe, but he, he couldn't talk, couldn't speak. Fred Craddock said as he was making that last visit to his father's room, he said when he walked in, he was shocked to see all these plants, all these flowers populating that hospital room. And Fred said he went around picking up the cards out of those plants and it was men's, men's Bible class, youth department, children's department, women's Bible study group. Fred Craddock said it must have been every organization in our little church that had sent flowers, plants, food to my father, even though he couldn't eat. Craddock said his father was watching him as he was moving about that room, looking at all the cards and reading them. And his dad picked up a Kleenex box, couldn't speak. He picked up a Kleenex box in a pen and, and he wrote a line from Shakespeare's Hamlet. In this harsh world, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. He then held it up to his son, Fred, Dr. Fred Craddock. He said, Dad, what is your story? The elder, Mr. Craddock, took the pen again and wrote a two-word phrase, three-word phrase, twice. I was wrong.
I was wrong. When it comes to life's ultimate question, don't make the wrong decision. Make the right decision. Proclaim Jesus is Lord. It will determine not only the life you live today, but it will determine the life you have for all eternity. Let's pray together. Our Father, might you give us the clarity of thought and mind this morning to consider the weight of this question. The weight of this question for each one of our lives, the lives we will pursue and the lives that we will have in all eternity. And Father, my prayer is if there is anyone within the sound of my voice that has been postponing or delaying life's ultimate question, that today, Lord, might bring about within them a definitive choice and determination about who you are and about what they will be in relationship to you. And that today might be the day of salvation for some when Jesus becomes Lord, Master, and Savior. So Father, do your bidding in each of our lives. Reveal yourselves to us in ways that are fresh and anew that we might be drawn all the more closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we stand this morning for the dismissal, I want to offer this blessing to you that Paul gave to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. I direct you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep that you keep the commandment without fault or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign the king of kings and lord of lords who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.